You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. And tonight we're continuing our Based on a Novel by series with... Jonathan Demme's adaptation of Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission from God. All right, sweethearts, you heard the man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. How great war is a spiritual war? How great depression is our lives. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian Elkins. With me tonight, Mr. Jeremy Benson. Hey, guys. I feel like it's been forever since I did one of these. Uh, well, it's been a little while since since we put out an episode, almost a month. So we're sorry about that, people. Well, you, you haven't been on since, like, what, The Thing, I think, was the last... Yeah. Yeah, it was the last yeah. one, right? It's been over a month since you've been on. So we're sorry. So we're talking about... <laughs> The epic. The Silence of the Lambs. The. The Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Although I guess this is not the the silence of them. Because it's kind, of, it's kind of alluded that, you know, the lambs will keep screaming even after the movie's over. But the book ends with she slept with the silence of the lambs. But they're going to come back again, though. They're going to come back. You don't know that. That's her reason for being that FBI agent. So right, keep let's, silencing. Oh, we are kind of spoiling things. Oh my gosh, hold let, on. Let's talk about this. All right, so this series, we we actually will read the novel and watch the movie. We we both got a little carried away on this one because this book is pretty good, and I think we both read the book and listened to the audiobook. <laughs> I listened to a little bit of the audiobook. Muller's pretty awesome, isn't he? Uh, yeah, Frank Frank Muller is the guy's name that did the audiobook. The 25th anniversary one, that's one I got from Audible. And, uh, yeah, that nice foreword by uh, the writer, uh, Thomas Harris. You know, that Frank Muller, I felt like when he was doing uh, Lecter's voice, I did feel like he was doing a little bit of Anthony Hopkins. You know, it was recorded before the movie was made. Are you? No way. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, I got a little bit of respect for I remember that. You lo- know? I remember looking that up one day and going, man, he's got to be copying. Maybe Anthony Hopkins listened to those on set. <laughs> It's like, screw it, I'm not going to read this book. Reading it, I felt like I was seeing more of Brian Cox's Hannibal Lecter from Manhunter, the film. Really? Then, yeah, than Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs when I was reading it. But the minute that audiobook comes and you meet Lecter, he starts, he's like, oh, my dude, he's doing Anthony Hopkins. But maybe Anthony Hopkins is doing his best Frank Muller impersonation. Book's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, book is really good, man. It's a page turner, dude. Like, I don't want to be, be cliche on that, but around a page 100 or something like that, you can't put that book down. Once the story gets kicking, it's it's going. Yeah, because I've seen the movie a lot right. you know, before reading this book. This is my first right. time reading the book. 
And uh, I was surprised by how how oh, is faithful. it really? Yes, yeah, first time. I don't think I'd ever. I've never read this. You'd mention how faithful of an adaptation this is to the book. This and The Green Mile are two book movie combinations that are so close in adaptations. I'll remember stuff from the book visually from the movie. You get them mixed up <laughs> because they are they are so close. You almost can imagine these little details that are in the book just being in the movie. And then when I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, wait, that's right. That's right. That's only in the book. Because, you know, like in Jaws or The Shining or almost any novel, movie based on the novel, the the movie veers quite a way away from the book. But this is not that case. It's pretty, pretty faithful adaptation. I am a fan of the movie. And reading the book, I felt like I was just getting more information with the characters. I was getting... Some more of the supporting characters were fleshed out a little bit better. The character I I really appreciated in the book that I thought made a huge emotional impact reading was the Jack Crawford character. His wife dies. Like, there's this whole thing with his wife who has, like, a terminal illness. You really get that professionalism versus home life with Jack that you don't get in the movie. Where he's going and he's still handling his job. He's still doing what he needs to do. But at home, his wife is dying of cancer. and It kind of changed... His relationship with uh, Clarice, because I I felt like, you know, reading it, it was much more of a mentor, student kind of role. They had the shared pain of of losing somebody by the end of the novel, whereas, like, in the end of the movie, I feel like their relationship is, it's, I don't know, maybe it's kind of, there's something sexual there, maybe? Oh, really? I never got that. Oh, really? I just kind of felt that there was always some kind of subtext, some kind of sexual subtext uh, in the movie, you know, because of that long handshake at the end, and always took in the movie that she was some you know just sort of a star pupil and he was he was going to use her to because she's hot and see if she can get Lecter to fill out the papers in the book I get much more of a sense that he seems to be a very like plotting planning person she sent him the letter that he never responded to he mentions that he's been you know paying attention to her grades I get the sense that he's been following her and then you know, takes on that mentor role. This is a sequel to Red Dragon, and it almost feels like Crawford is getting his new protege because Lecter cut his other one's face up. Yeah, Will Graham, <laughs> the protagonist from yeah. Red Dragon. Silence of Lambs versus Red Dragon. I like Silence a little bit more just because of the Clarice Starling. Having that character in the training role, you know, where she is not an experienced FBI agent. And I'm not. She's never done this. Well, she has no field experience. I don't want to sound sexist, but anytime, I mean, that's the reason women are, that's the reason there is a survivor girl. It, there's a little bit more vulnerability there as a viewer or a reader. You're rooting for her a little bit more than you are for Will Graham. When we meet yeah. Will Graham, you know, not only is he not a student, we're also told that he is the best at what he does. You almost expect him to get the better of the bad guys. With Clarice, you're you're almost scared that you're really scared she's not going to get the better of them, and Lecter's going to outsmart her, and that's going to be bad. Yeah, that's true. Because Will Graham's character, he's the guy that actually locked up Lecter, right? But you know, these movies are very similar. I mean, the, well, not the movies, but the stories um, are very similar. Red Dragon and, and Silence of the Lambs with the the FBI, you know, agent getting advice from Lecter. To catch this other serial killer. Right. You know, that's what both movies are, or both books. I keep saying movies, damn it. Well, uh, the, the, both, both books are about. Movies, too. Oh, yeah. 
both stories. Right? Yeah, that's what we need to um, see. Where Silence, Silence of the Lamb gets interesting is, and I haven't seen Red Dragon or read the book in a while, but Lecter's help in, in Red Dragon ends up really not well for Will Graham. Where Harris, with Silence of the Lambs, he plays with the reader a little bit, but you, he sets Lecter up to actually trying to help Clarice. And it's the whole quid pro quo. He is not tricking Clarice. He tricks the doctor, Chilton. He lies to the doctor. He lies to the senator. He lies to the police. But he doesn't lie to Clarice. He lies to her a little bit. In the book, he gives her the clues. And he leaves it for her to figure out. But he yeah. gives her clues. And But when the Boston police and the doctor, Chilton, and the FBI and the senator, they are trying to force him to give her give them information, he lies to them. Straight up, just lies to them. But yeah, man, there are really not that many differences, man. No, there's really not. There's a little difference in the lead up to the storage, the storage facility. You get a lot of how the dots are connected, make a lot more sense. The storage facilities, it's not lectors. It's actually that patients. Right. Uh, uh, Raspels. Yes, Raspels. It was his storage facility. Once she gets to the storage facility, like the movie has, they can't get the storage door up. She has to use the jack in the car. She goes in. The guy waits outside. The news crew shows up. Like, all that stuff is in the book. Those are all details from the book. Normally, like, a scene like that would just be rewritten. They did cut out that rat thing, though, where the old man is, like, obsessed with rats being in there. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta put your... Tie your... Tie your pants legs. Yeah, it's, it's like, are they going to get up? And, like, Why would why would they crawl up your leg? Is that a thing? Yes. That, oh, that's that, a thing? That is a thing, yeah. Rats do crawl up pant legs? Really? Mice and rats will, yeah, though. Yeah. Hmm. You can learn a lot from reading a Thomas Harris novel. You know, uh, like I will how say. How to make a bodysuit out of human skin. <laughs> that's Where right. to put the zipper so that if someone hugs you, it feels correct. You know, he did go a little. That was a little creepy reading some of that because he he does go into like, oh, okay, well, if this isn't gonna work, and I need to put my seam over here, and but people are used to the spine, the spine. They're used to the bulge in the spine. So if you put the zipper down the spine, you know, Thomas Harris kind of reminds me of Will Graham. Like he gets in the head maybe a little too much of the serial killer. <laughs> I hear he's a nice guy, full of full of a lot of laughs, but. Uh... Wish he, wish he put out some more books. Yeah, he hasn't written anything since Hannibal Rising, right? I don't think so. You know, I was looking at his uh, bibliography. He has not written that much. He read the lectures. Black Sunday. Black Sunday in the lecture series, man. Yeah, pretty much. That's all I know of. That's it? A Black Sunday was pretty good. I like that. Have you seen that with uh, the movie of that? No. I've never read the book, but I, I like the movie with I've Robert Shaw. I've never even read the book. I have not read the book. The what's what's good, the movie about? These terrorists are going to take this blimp and blow it up and shoot all these darts out uh, at the Super Bowl and kill all the spectators. Damn. And, yeah, and uh, Robert Shaw from Jaws has got to go and and uh, hunt down Bruce Dern, I think, is the bad guy. I'm have to check this book out. I don't know if the book's any good. I would assume so after reading Sons of the Lambs. I like his style. Uh, we were talking about it last night, but he's... We we talked about on Cujo where some of the description and the character building kind of got on your nerves that it went on a little bit too long. Yeah, where it didn't to me like that's that's fine. But Thomas Harris, it's it's clean like that is it is very tight. Like 
if you just read through pages of the book, there's there's not a lot of description. It's a, it's a lot of dialogue, and there's a lot of like things explained in the dialogue. Yeah, he does do that. Um, which anytime you're reading dialogue, it reads faster than, and anytime you can have characters explain things in dialogue, it it's just a faster, more page turning read. I will say I like this book a lot better than Cujo, just in from a, not even from a story or anything that just enjoyment in reading. This is just more my thing. There's not any wasted words. Yeah, you know, it's very quick, very to the point. I mean, man, if you wanted to, you got up early. Man, you got up at nine. You could have this book done in a day, easy. I had seen the movie before I read the book. Um, I'm pretty sure most people, a lot of people had. Especially our age, yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's a weird experience because, like, you watch a movie that you really like and then you read the book and it's like, well, this is completely different. Not sure if I, you know, sometimes you even fall in love with the book more and you're like, wait, wait a minute. They changed that and that's awesome. And you kind of get, and then, then you have like retro kind of mad at the movie or sometimes you like the movie yeah. so much and you read the book and it's not like the movie and you're going, ah, wh- <sighs> why did you guys cut this out? This is great. Like this is one that I don't know for, for some reason the movie compliments, the book compliments the movie, the movie compliments the book so well that. For me, when I read the book, it made me actually like the movie more. And then watching the movie makes me like the book more. I kind of had a weird thing with this. Because when I got done with the book, I was like, maybe the screenwriter didn't do the best job that I, this, this great, incredible script that I thought this guy had written. Maybe it wasn't really that great. There are huge, huge, huge passages that are taken word for word from the book. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, almost, I would say more than 50% of the lines that come out of people's mouth is word for word from the book. And even if it's not word for word, it they'll, like even the, the fava beans and canty, that line is the exact same, only they change. It's not a canty, it's a, it's a different kind of wine, like an armoire or something, something like that. Something like that. That's some, I forget what it was, but... And didn't he improv that anyway, didn't he? Yeah, right. I don't know. I I had this weird kind of like uh, maybe it's this maybe the movie's but, not as good. But then I watched the movie. The way he abbreviated the story and cut certain things out is fucking genius. Right? How he speeds the story up and is able to tell to tell this whole like twelve hour story into two hours. Hey man, genius! And it's like I was saying earlier with talking about like this and Green Mile. You just you just said it best when you mentioned the time like. Everything that's in the book is not in the movie. Yeah. But the adaptations are so close that when I read the book, I think all of that stuff is in the movie. But obviously, it's not. It would be a 12-hour movie. <laughs> that's what they're doing now. It's miniseries. <laughs> right. I think that goes to show the, the talent of uh, Ted Talley and writing, adapting that screenplay, and really, you know, bringing everything that you you need to tell that story into the movie, and capturing that feeling that, okay, we're giving you the information that you need. These two complement each other well. You have, you know, this is a movie, and this is a book, and they're two different things. They don't go together. Especially, like, when you talk about, like, The Shining or something, where, you know, there's the big... Oh, yeah. Big differences in the book. Some people are like, oh, I can't like the movie because I'm faithful to the book. And I'm like, you know, you can like the movie and the book. They're two different things. In this case, like, I feel like they complement each other so well. Like, if you're a fan of this movie, read this book. You're going to really like it. It's kind of like what they do now with, like, comic adaptations. Like, get your prequel comic. That's It's this close. You know, it's like, 
if you want to know about this extra scene with Clarice, Clarice Starling right. was off screen, buy the book, man. You'll find out. If you want to know what her and Mapper are talking about in the dorm room later that night. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, okay, one subplot we haven't brought up yet that was cut out. I did like, I was actually going through the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray and saw they did shoot, but cut it out. Clarice Starling, she actually gets to the point where she could possibly get kicked out of the FBI. She could be taken out of her classes and may get a chance to get back in another class. Yeah, she's, she's or may not. She's seriously looking at getting kicked out. Yeah, and she pisses off the senator badly. The, yeah, the senator whose daughter was big kidnapped. league, big league. You know, it it does look bad. Did you so, just, they, so they actually shot all that. Did you just say big league? Yeah, I threw in a Trumpism. God damn it! Fuck, dude. Fuck. You know what? We're the movie crew podcast. We're not. I'm not going to talk politics. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to go into a fucking rant. I'm not going to go into a political rant right now. I'm not. It's we're, just, we're, in, we're in a happy place, bro. We're not ha- gonna do it. <sighs> Damn it, man! You threw me off. What the fuck were we talking? What were we even talking about? So, All so I can they think actually, about now is Donald Trump. They actually did shoot that. Like they shot that she was going to get kicked out of the. Yeah, man. Like a lot of stu- uh, stuff with Scott Glenn, who plays the Jack Crawford character. Uh, hit, a lot of his stuff hit the cutting room floor. And, you know, in the novel, like, yeah, he's in this book all the way from start to finish. In the movie, he kind of disappears, like, right before Lecter escapes. He kind of disappears from the last half. He shows up, like, two or three more scenes, and that's about it in the movie. Yeah, he shows up when they're on the plane to go to the... Now, I do, like, the book is, is much more of a, a just, you know, linear, This is this is what happened... It does not do the intercutting between the FBI showing up at the house and Clary showing up, and because in the movie, well, like, yeah, the way I, it, yeah. it cuts together in the movie, it it almost you know it tricks you to think that the FBI is at James Gum's house, but well, why would yeah, why would Clarice be there when they rang the doorbell? <laughs> you know, when he answers the door, it's Clarice, and then you're like, oh. In well, the they book, kinda, they kind of do it in the book, though. They because they, they do surprise you. Well, in the book, they they say they 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 have found James Gum and they're going to his house, and then she goes to the the old lady that used whatever, to make dresses yeah. with the girl that got right killed. The first girl that got killed. I think it start, her last name starts with an L. She goes over there to interview the old lady, and that turns out to be where James Gum is living, which is exactly what she does in the movie, but. Yeah, they they purposefully do that, you know, that nice little cut where it's like, ah, oh, hey, we're here. We're both ringing on doorbells and, you know, answers the door. And it's like, oh, this is Jodie Foster. And then you see the SWAT team, like, come in and they're all like, hey, this is an empty house. Right. What's going on? Well, that's much more dramatic and yeah, it's, that's, you surprising know, that's in the movie where in the book, you're you're pretty much following Jody, or Clary Starling at that point. Maybe that could have been a surprise if I hadn't seen the movie. And I was reading the book that she was going to, you know, that's when she was going to find the killer. You know, whatever. I saw the movie first, so I knew it was going to happen. But fucking ruined the book for you. Yeah, it kind of did. Well, fuck it. If you've seen the movie, just don't even see the read the book. Just, just screw it. I, I, I would have I would have been a, a cool surprise. And same thing with the Lecter stuff. Um, like the Lecter escape would have been would have been cool. Although I do like he writes that passage where the ambulance starts going all crazy and everyone in the in the on the streets is like what the, what the hell's going on with the ambulance? Right. Goes over it straightens to the, and- Yeah, it just goes off, turns the lights off, sirens down. Do 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 do. 
Yeah, I don't know, man. There's a lot, all that little added material. It, it it does add to the story. The book is definitely worth reading, especially if you're, you know, if you're the kind of reader that wants a a page turner that you know you're not looking for flowery prose that yeah. leaves you thinking and contemplating language. If you want a hard boiled story, read Silence of the Lambs. All right, man. Uh, you want to take a break, play the trailer, and then. Uh... Let's, let's tell people what we think of this awesome movie. Sure. You spook easily, Starling. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious precise and he's never impulsive he'll never stop but in order to track him down she'll have to match wits i'll have to catch him clary believe me you don't want hannibal actor inside your head with the darkest of all minds just do your job but never forget what he is oh he's a monster pure psychopath so rare to capture one alive so close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Thank you, Clarice. Thank you. All right, welcome back. That was a trailer for Sons of the Lambs. Or the the Silence. Silence of the Lambs. Man, those articles, man. They always come up and get you, dude. The. The. <sighs> and it really irritates me on, like, when you're looking for stuff in alphabetical order, because some people actually put it under the, and some people put it under S. That's, uh, that's a no-no. You don't do that. You don't count A and or the. I always thought that you, you don't, but then you go to certain websites, and you're like, God, man. That's just lazy. Come on, guys. You, you put the title in, and if it's going to be the first you know, letter that's going to be alphabetized by, you do the comma, and then you put the the. Right? Isn't that what you do? Yes. <laughs> Benson's like, dude, come I on. I was nodding, but... You don't need to tell people that. <laughs> well, the sad thing was is I forgot that this is a podcast, and I'm nodding going, yeah, you're right. Before right. we get going too deep into the movie here, I want to bring up something. I love the poster for this movie. I actually have the poster. I don't know. I'm looking at it. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a favorite of mine. This is a classic poster. Now, how many times have you had the argument? Silence of the Lambs is not a horror film. Oh, you don't even want to go into like you should look at the the death head moth on the poster and see the naked people. A lot of people don't know that, dude, because you know if if you don't have the actual poster, or if you don't go online and look at a big you know, a big picture of it. You can't really see all the naked people in there. It's kind of like the naked people are designed like that, uh, like that poster for the descent. Right. They totally ripped that off. <laughs> sure did. Actually, I was, I was looking at some, that's actually, uh, they got that. It was inspired from some, uh, photograph from like the twenties or thirties. The poster. The, no, the, well, the, the way the people are, are the women are shaped into a skull formation. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was some 20, I forget what the, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes if I can find that article. Now, what were you saying now? How many times have you had the argument with people that Silence of the Lambs is not a horror film? This and Jaws, I would say, are the, are the ones that... 
Yeah. I always got to say, like, no, this is, this is a horror movie, man. Just because it's a good movie. Doesn't make it not a horror film. <laughs> and that's, I feel like that's what people want to go to. It's like, well, this is a good movie. It can't be hard. It's, I like this one. It's good. You know, you can, you can watch this movie with a lot of people. And even if they're not horror fans, they're probably going to like this movie. Might creep them out. It's, well, you, it's a movie about a serial killer. I mean, you know, come on. It's a police procedure. It's not a horror film. It's a thriller. It's not a horror film. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I really do get tired of, of that argument. But I think it was Greg Nicotero on that documentary, um, Going to Pieces. I thought he summed it up the best. He's like, if this isn't a horror film, I don't know what it is. It's a movie about a guy that is cutting off patches of women's skin and to make a making a suit. <laughs> He's like, Leatherface did the exact same thing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's horror, but if you do it and you have good actors in it, <laughs> <laughs> and you got a little bit of a budget, then it's a drama or a thriller. <laughs> And it's like, what? What's going on? I mean, seriously, there is a woman kept in a pit and starved so her skin will be looser. Puts the it lotion, puts the lotion on. I meant skin. to wear my t-shirt today, and I, did, I didn't wear it. Again? I actually have the t-shirt. That oh yeah, man. No, that's that, that's a that, you wear that on set like at least once a week. Yeah, it's like <laughs> your uh, it's like your your set shirt. Your size of lambs. Vincent's showing up. He's like, yes, I'm hon- I'm honing uh, Jonathan Demi today. Whoa. Uh, that just shows you that while we're shooting, I'm not doing laundry. I'm grabbing stuff in <laughs> rotation. Oh man, I was just thinking it was like you know your your one of your you know your lucky shirts. I I, I got my lucky socks and stuff. Well, I don't have lucky socks, but I got my shirts that I'm like you know. This is my shirt I wear on certain days for certain things. Really? You don't you don't have that shirt where you're just like, you know, this is the one I picked out. This is my favorite shirt. You don't no. have that favorite t-shirt? No? no. Oh, man. I got a Star Wars shirt that I just love. That one from Target with the rainbow that everyone in the fucking world has. But, man, I don't care. I love that shirt. It's so great. It's like retro, and it's just comfy cotton, and that's my shirt. I like wearing that shirt. It's my shirt. Anyway. I have that shirt. It is comfy. I know, right? Maybe the highest-selling shirt in the nation. <laughs> I feel like, at least it is around here. Like Everyone's like, yeah, I shop, I shop at Target. What? Fuck you. Right. <laughs> so do you remember the first time you saw Silence of the Lambs? Uh, the Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was I was pretty old when I saw this. I actually saw Seven and Copycat before this movie. Really? Yeah. Um, I actually saw a lot of the Imitators before this. Man, after I saw this, I was like, well, I obviously I started in the wrong order. I should have seen this one first, or maybe I shouldn't have, because then that would have ruined those other movies a little bit for me. Maybe save the best for last. Kind of motto there. It's a good one. It, I, I think it's, it's my favorite of the serial killer films. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think it kind of stands out. I saw it pretty young. I, I probably saw it. I don't know, ninety two, ninety three. Oh, not too long after it came out, then. Yeah. When it hit video. Yeah, probably as soon as it hit video, we probably had it. Uh, dude, I remember this being checked out like all the time for like a year. Yeah, I remember we had we were on a waiting list, and I remember when it came in, we went and got it. I remember folks always, yeah, my dad was constantly had his name down for Silence of the Lambs, and my name was down for Terminator 2. <laughs> Those were the two. It's like, oh, we're never going to rent these movies. Ah, oh, the VHS days. I miss them. Yeah, man, going into those video stores. I just miss the experience, that whole, like, like, you know, your name is on the list. You get this movie for a night, so everybody needs to come home if they're going to watch this movie. Everybody gets together, they watch the movie. You know, now something comes out, it's going to be, you know, it's digital or it's, you know, I bought it on Blu-ray. And 
Mike can get the kids to sit down and watch it, but they know it's there and they can watch it some other time if they're busy. Yeah, everybody's got their phones and their tablets and all yeah. that other crap. And yeah. it's not it's not as big of a family event. I try, I try to do that at least once a month, though. Like make the kids. I try. Watch some. I'm gonna try to make them watch older films too. Like even some black and white stuff that they're like, "Oh, Dad, why are you making me watch black and white? It's boring." Well, Brandon's colorblind and care. <laughs> well, hey, look, there you go, man. You can show him some Hitchcock films. One of his favorites is Sergeant bitch. York. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Sergeant York, really? Yeah, I love that movie. He's, he's ten, right? Yeah. Oh my well, gosh. He's nine. He'll be ten in January. Oh, okay. Wouldn't expect Sergeant York to be uh, a nineteen-year-old's. Uh, Favorite movie. Oh, he thought it was fascinating. Like how they lived back then and just you know, living out like in the country like that and how he wanted the bottom land and then he went to war. He he fell in love with that movie. It actually made him research like he, he researched World War One because of that. You know, I, I didn't see this as as a young child though, the sexual natures of the movie with the I the remember serial killer. Yeah, I remember my mom being kind of freaked out when we watched it. I remember her saying, I don't know if we should be letting them watch this. Like I saw Pulp Fiction before I saw Silence of the Lambs. Well, it's definitely one for me that when I saw it as a kid, I didn't get everything that I got the next time I watched it. Probably when I was around 20. I, I missed all this stuff. Especially when this film came out in 91. You know, people weren't open and they weren't talking about uh, homosexuals and transgenders and, and but there before we go any further they're very clear in the movie and the book that he is not a transgender that's part of how they they catch him or they think they're gonna catch him oh yeah it, he has like some uh identity crisis because uh-huh. of uh, child abuse at, at a young age yeah and they go into that um and you know they, they turn him away at a bunch of transgender clinics right he fails the test and he gets like violent with uh in with, the book yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. They don't do that in the movie. See, like, I'm already getting yeah, them confused. Yeah, yeah. See? See what I mean? Like, you, you, you see that shit in your head, and you're like, that That happened in the movie. Yeah, that didn't happen in the movie. Ah, forget about that. Uh, the LGBT community was pretty mad. You know, Silence of the Lambs, and I remember, um, what was that Paul Verhoeven movie with Sharon Stone? Um, Basic Instinct. Both of those films were, were really touchy. It's like, you know, you're you're portraying our group as serial killers and homicidal maniacs. Yeah, I remember Jonathan Demi was like, "No, we're this is not we. This guy is not gay." Oh yeah, I mean Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan Demi. I mean, this is a guy like he felt so bad about that that he made Philadelphia Philadelphia right after, which is about a man with AIDS who gets fired and is going to court to say, "Hey, you can't fire me just because I have AIDS." <laughs> that was a terrible summary of that movie, but you get the idea. Um, and you know, Jonathan Demi even felt bad about like. Showing the FBI in such a positive light, like in the in the commentary, he really, yeah, he was saying like, you know, I felt bad because I don't, I don't always agree with everything that the FBI has done, and this was really a movie that did for the FBI what Top Gun did for the Air Force. Recruitments went up because of this movie. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either, but he felt kind of bad for that, and he was he was a little well, conflicted. You, with you that. know, you don't want more people joining the FBI. I mean, just be- well, I don't think he wanted to show like you know like their uh, perfect organization or anything like that, and I don't I don't think that Silence of the Lambs really shows that the FBI is you know spotless and perfect anyway. I don't I mean, no, but I would look at it more as I don't know I would look at it more as optimistic that perhaps my portrayal 
of the FBI as being this, you know, force of good is making good people want to join the FBI. Because, I mean, let's face it, we need the FBI, like... No, I mean, we do need the FBI, but... It would be it would be kind of bad if we didn't have the FBI. I can understand that as an artist, you don't... If, if it's something you don't 100% agree with, you don't want to present it in a flawless light. You're not 100% saying, standing, you I, know? I never really thought they presented the FBI in a flawless light. Like, See, I didn't either. They, they I don't know why he kind of felt bad. Jack Crawford comes across like a little bit of an asshole. Yeah, when right? He, he's... At a certain point in the movie, I'm, I'm sure most people have seen it, spoiler alert, but... Uh, he sends Clarice in with a fake offer for Hannibal, and I don't remember in the in the if the in the movie if she knows it's a fake offer or not. Yeah, she knows. Okay, because I know in the book she asks, and he says it's better if you don't know. That way, you don't have to lie. Right. Because Lecter will know when you're lying. But yeah, no, it, it, Jack Crawford is kind of a, a, a dick. They're at the autopsy scene. We let's not talk about the grisly details right here in front of the lady. Yeah, I mean he didn't come out and say it, but he's but like, it's you know. it's implied. Oh, it's heavily implied. This like the shot right after with all the cops just staring and looking at her. You know what? We should let's, before we before we go too in, in into all detail in all the movie. I did want to talk about Orion Pictures real quick that put this this film out. How they got the movie? Dino DeLaurentiis did all the other. Lecter films, all of them but Silence of Lambs. Well, Manhunter was the first one, and it did so bad that Dino just said, hey, Orion, you want to make Silence of Lambs? Sure. Orion Pictures, you just go have fun with this. You make it. And it turned out to be a winner of five Oscars (laughs) for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. The top five. Only, uh, what, uh, One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest and uh, It Happened One Night are the only other two films to ever do that. Really? Yeah, in history. Still to this day. Still to this day. That's right. The last movie to win the top five. That's what they call it. Whatever. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs. Well, I remember it definitely putting Anthony Hopkins on the map. Yeah, uh, Jodie Foster. Even though she had won an Oscar for The Accused, uh, I think a couple years before, maybe the year before. I mean, she was almost made to play this role. Right? She wasn't the first choice, though. Really? Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer was the first choice. Because Jonathan Demme had worked with her in uh, Married to the Mob. She turned it down because of the subject matter. Bet she wishes she had rethought that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm kind of glad she passed on it, man. I think Jodie Jody Foster oh, was right. Uh, yeah. Like, even when you go and watch Hannibal with um, Julianne Moore, it takes a little while to get used to that's not Jodie Foster. <laughs> Yeah, it's not Jodie Jody Foster. just like nails it. Like it, she, it's one of those rare occasions where the actor just becomes this character. I don't know how to explain it, but there's certain performances where you you forget that that's Jodie Foster. It that is Clary Starling. Hopkins does it with Hannibal Lecter. That's part of the reason why this movie is so good. You almost forget that's that's Anthony Hopkins. No, that's Hannibal Lecter. Jack Nicholson's really good at that for me. Like. Completely forget, you know, like that's Jack Nicholson, and then what? Yeah, really? I man, I can never forget the, that that's Jack Nicholson, man. No, there's a, there's a couple of movies. I think he just he creates such a good character that I mean, it, it's it's always top of mind that he's Jack Nicholson. But while yeah. watching the movie, it just like he's created such a character that's so different from himself that about Schmidt is like that for me, like. Well, yeah, that, that's a little bit different, though, for Nick, Nicholson. I, that's one of his, like, very rare 
But like, that's what I'm saying. He's subtle playing, performances. But he's playing something, and he's doing it so well that that's so different from what you're used to seeing from him. I don't think while I'm watching the movie, oh, that's Jack Nicholson doing this. I just think, oh, that's such an interesting character. I'll, g- I'll give you that one. I don't know about the rest of them, though. Because, you know, Batman. Sometimes. The, sh- the Shining. I said sometimes. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I'm not giving Nicholson a hard time. I'm not giving him a hard time. Uh, hey, look, man. You know. That and As Good As It Gets are two that come to mind that I think he creates a character that, that kind of transcends and goes past him being an actor on the screen. Like, yeah. if you watch him in Wolf, that's Jack Nicholson playing that guy. But you watch him in As Good As It Gets or about Schmidt, he's those characters. I don't know, man. As Good As It Gets, that still feels like Nicholson to me. Really? Yeah. yeah. Even in A Few Good Men when he tries to be all, I'm the military sergeant guy. You can't and, handle the truth. Yeah, it's still, it's like, eh, yeah, come on, man. You're he's still Jack Nicholson. He's a good actor. Though. He is a good actor. I will give you that. Five easy pieces. That that's that's a really interesting performance. Her and uh, Anthony Hopkins do that for me in this movie. Is they sort of transcend. Oh yeah. Into these characters, and while watching the movie, I forget that these are actors, and I'm just totally sucked into giving Thomas Harris and the Ted Talley the credit of writing characters that are that good of characters that you can sink that deep into. Yeah, I mean they are giving great lines. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's no question about that. Like. And how they deliver them is amazing. And you know the actor that I think is overlooked a lot in this movie, but really helps make this movie, is the guy that plays Chilton. Anthony Harold? You forget how much of an adversary he is to Clarice and the FBI in this movie. Oh, he's, man, he's so good. He's, he's one of the nemesis. You know, he's one of the pro- antagonists of the film. Really outside of Buffalo Bill, he's, he's number two. I want to die on my list. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he's a jerk. You he know? is. He's a total asshole. He t- like, and it's such a weird juxtaposition seeing that the guy that's not locked up taking her down to the dungeon that's Hannibal Lecter's cell, and this guy is just being an ass, right? And we, and we get to Hannibal Lecter, it's like, and yeah, he's, he's creepy, but, but he's such a gentleman. Yeah, and he's not rude until like the very end of their first encounter. And that you know, it's like, well, now you're boring me and you're pissing me off. So, but it's it's those little subtle subtle juxtapositions that make it such an interesting interesting movie and story. And performances too, like they're looking at the camera in almost all of their close-ups when they're talking. Not every single one, but I would say like half of them. They're looking directly into the camera and delivering that. Have you have you heard any like Jonathan Demme talking about why he did that? Because it started like. No, he doesn't even bring it up on the commentary. Really. I've heard a lot of people mention that they thought he only did it during Clarice and Hannibal scenes, but no, it it the opening scene with Jack Crawford. Yeah, it, it starts just like that. Uh, I've always wondered why did he choose to do that. Yeah, it's, it's even, very off putting. It's even in the roommate scene. Yeah, it's very kind of jarring when you see it. And Jodie Foster was talking uh, about it, and like I never thought about it. like she's lo- she's not even looking at Anthony Hopkins. She's looking at a camera lens, and she's giving this great performance. And she was she was saying that the 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 focal length was it was so shallow that if they if she moved like an inch forward and it wasn't a rehearsed move, cut. We gotta go back, go back. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's like oh, you're you're too out. And the guy that shot this uh, Tak uh, Fujimoto didn't win that cinematography Oscar, but man, this is a good looking movie. 
And we're talking about those close-ups, and they're looking at camera, and they're off-putting, but, man, every single one is shot differently. Like, if you want to watch a movie on how do I frame close-ups, watch Silence of the Lambs. There's, like, 25 different ways to frame a close-up in this film. It's really interesting. Does Buffalo Bill do it? Uh, you know, I don't know if he actually looks into the camera, but they got those tight close-ups on Does him. Does Chilton do it when she first goes to... Uh, he may. I'm wondering, and this is just a theory that I'm brewing in my head right now. I wonder if it's it's the first time you meet people throughout the movie, you look them right in the eye. Well, it's not just the first meeting, because every time she meets Lecter, they do it. Yeah, I mean, but I don't remember them doing it with Jack Crawford any other time other than that first. I may be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very interesting shot, and I mean, it's it's weird how they they use it though, because they, it's like they don't always use it for the same reasons. Like in that autopsy scene we were talking about, where they're pointing out that she's a woman, like all the cops are looking directly at the camera lens, and it's just panning across them, right? You know, and that's that's obviously to get the all the eyes are on me feeling, right? And then to use that in the lecture scenes, and and it's like something no, not a lot of people talk about this film. And it's the most, it's really bizarre, independent, stylistic choice. Like, you don't see that kind of filmmaking, I don't, I don't think, in like real big, huge budget Hollywood movies. They're, it's, it's a risk. Usually actors are like, man, you look in camera, man, I'm, I will yell, I will yell and <laughs> pitch a fit if an actor is looking in camera, but you be cutting something and it's all beautiful and it's like, and oh man, this is going great. They do that little eye jerk. Little eye twitch toward camera. It's like, damn it, you fucked this perfect take up. Stop looking at the camera lens. I didn't look at the camera, dude. I'm looking at the footage. You looked at the camera. Here, let's pause it right there. I'm not looking at the camera, dude. Your eyes are staring right at me. Oh yeah, I am looking at the camera. Yeah, I didn't know that about the focal distance. Oh, I didn't know that uh, until I was uh, listening to that commentary. Which I, you know, we haven't pimped out Filmstruck online um, streaming service Criterion launched. They had the commentary up on their uh, their site. And the commentary is only on that Criterion DVD that is out of print. You can get it on eBay, but you're going to have to pay a fortune for it. And it's DVD. But the Blu-ray doesn't have the fucking commentary. And it's a good commentary? It is a good commentary. You can listen to it on YouTube. Um, I mean, it's out of print. I don't feel bad about, about saying that. You know, if Criterion, you want to get off your ass and release it, I'll be more than happy to pay for it. <laughs> more than happy. You know, if you get on Filmstruck, I'm sure they'll have it up there again. Because, I mean, I think that's a huge reason a lot of people signed up was to listen to that commentary that's why i signed up man (laughs) this movie kicked off like a whole bunch of other serial killer movies you had mentioned earlier that you know you saw seven and copycat like after you saw silence of the lambs yeah Um, well i saw them before no i'm not saying that this was the yeah that's what i meant before i'm not saying this was the first serial killer movie but it was the first of this kind of this kind of serial killer movie that i can remember oh man dude this changed like like twin peaks it, it pretty it much, changed it, tv it changed a lot of like it almost created a genre inside of that horror thriller genre of its own dude think about how many times like the fbi agent showed up after this like even the x-files or how many times the villain has to be a brilliant right mastermind Oh, I'm gonna plan my perfect escape. And are you telling me Scully from the X Files is not completely ripped off visually? FBI agent, red hair. Hannibal's escape. It, it's it's in Clarice Silence Stone. of the Lambs is my favorite escape in any movie. 
I, I can't think of a better one off the top of my head. Like, I remember watching it as I was a kid, but I was totally like, when they they found him on the elevator, I was like, oh, they found him. And then they shot him. I was like, well, wait a minute. And when he cuts to that ambulance and he peels that face off, I was like, oh, my. Like, that just blew my mind. Dude, I about jumped 50 feet in the air when they undo the elevator latch door. And the body just falls down real quick. I was right. like, oh, my God. What? And it just hangs there. And you are like, what the fuck? Did they just kill him? Man, once you, once you realize what he did, you're just like, oh, wow. And what about that shot when they first go into the jail room and he's got that guy up and the the lights coming out behind him? You know, that I, I would say that's the only part of the movie where I'm a little – I've always been a little iffy on. Really? Yeah, because it's so – it's really stylized. Like it – all the conversation scenes with uh, Clarice and uh, Hannibal, those are stylized, you know, with their close-ups and how they right. go in and sometimes the lights will go out in the background and stuff. But this was just such a huge departure. Like, it was a whole lighting setup with the lights, like, shining, and it kind of looks, you know, it looks like a butterfly hung up in there and his guts are ripped out. It's, it's, it's I don't know, it's really over-the-top gory. Hannibal gave them a display of art. But, you know, you need that in the movie. I mean, it is the big escape for Hannibal, you know. But I do like I do like that escape. And when he does rip that face off, man, you're right, man. That is like one of those. Oh, and not to, there's so much good stuff here. But I mean, just iconic imagery. Oh yeah, iconic imagery, iconic lines. I mean, we, the hockey mask, man. Who thought anybody could make a hockey mask iconic with anybody outside of Jason Voorhees? Like, you're gonna put a hockey mask to somebody else? I mean, now granted, it's not a whole hockey mask, but you know, they had to change it a little bit. Dude, that's how big this movie was. I wonder <laughs> how it. many dudes tucked their dicks between their legs and tried to look at themselves in the mirror after oh my this God. movie. You had to go to the penis tucking scene, didn't you? <laughs> well, it was, it was up with the uh, the, the, the early 90s. Were just, it was kind of weird, man. If you look back at the early 90s films, you look at Silence of the Lambs, and then a couple years, like I think the next year later, you have The Crying Game coming out. I've never seen it. Oh, you've never seen it? Uh, it's, it's this irate. You know what? If you've never seen it, I won't tell you. Never mind. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the crying game for you. But it was, and then like there was Basic Instinct. There was a lot of like horror thriller. Uh, what do you call them? Erotic thrillers. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, in, in the early '90s, and it breaking into the mainstream. Yeah, you know, it's. I guess like maybe you could point it back to the the late '80s, like you know, Fatal Attraction. I think kind of started that. And then yeah, I think you had body double a little bit earlier. Well, I mean, usually trends in film will there's probably some underground or foreign erotic thriller movement that this just kind of came out of and went mainstream for a little while. What was perceived at the time to be a you know taboo sexuality? I wish I I wish I could remember where I read this. I was like two or three days ago. I was doing just some kind of reading around online to kind of you know get some different viewpoints on. Silence of the Lambs, and I read a blog somewhere where a guy was talking about how much he thinks Silence of the Lambs got from Ario Digenta from like Suspiria and because of the lighting. I, I can't say I, I agree with it, but the guy made a convincing argument. I meant to like, huh? I meant to make a note and bring it up so that you know, like send it to you so you could read it. But I can't say I agree with him that I don't. I don't think the movie was that influenced by. Dario, I can't ever say the guy's name. Dario Agento. Hearing this guy's argument, he thinks it was heavily influenced. Uh, Tak Fujimoto, in his cinematography, like he'll man, he just uses some red. Chilton and 
and Clarice, and he shows her the the photograph of the nurse that Lecter attacked, and it's that huge red, and it's just spilling all over her face and his face, and it's that close up, and that's kind of got like a that Italian giallo feel to it. Yeah, I can I'll I can kind of agree with that. He I mentioned can see that. he mentioned lighting and editing, and I could see the editing as well. Um, it was a pretty interesting piece. You know that that is one crazy thing. This movie won a crap load of Oscars, but did not win editing. And man, I think this has some of the best fucking goddamn scene transitions ever put in a film, dude. Like that, that end in sequence alone. Oh, you're talking about when she uh, with the night vision goggles, all the way up from the the red herring switch from the FBI going to the house. They're cutting back and forth. The doorbell's ringing. He goes to the door. The FBI busts in. He opens the door. It's Clarice. They go into an empty house. She goes in, has the conversation with it. Like, the pace just drops right then, and it's like, oh. I mean, just the way it's cut together, when she goes in, you you know now, oh, fuck, she's in there with him alone. When that butterfly comes in, and then just all hell breaks loose, and she ends up in there with the night, night vision goggles. And Oh, man, that is such a tremendous scene. Like, that alone should have got this guy editing. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just those... And it's basic stuff, too. It's like when she's leaving Lecter's cell, she's crying, she's upset, and it it goes from her crying in this wide shot to what's the next thing? She's shooting a gun at the camera. Yeah. What the hell? And it's like Lecter escaping, you know, you have the, the ambulance shot, and then it, boom, cuts to with that great Howard Shore score, you know, flaring up to the roommate, dropping the phone. And the phone dangling and her running down the hall. And it, man, it just works. And it's got good transitions. And it's like two shots and you're getting information told and you're moving on. Now we have these two shots. In 10 seconds, now you know Clarice knows. We're good. Go One on. of my, my uh, film teacher used to say if you – the two movies you have to watch – the two well, he, he called them modern movies. Uh, <laughs> the two modern movies you have to watch to learn filmmaking, Silence of the Lambs and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Although, you know, th- this is definitely not modern anymore. This is the film's 20th anniversary now. So now it is officially a classic. Oh, is it 20? Is it a classic? Is it 20 or 25? I think it's 25. Okay, yeah, no, it's, we're 20 we're 25. It came out in 91. Mm-hmm. So, 2016. You were you were talking about that uh the editing and that in sequence with the uh the night vision goggles. There is so much to see in that that sequence and there's so little bits of information like the first time I saw it, I did not see the woman suit with the, the <laughs> one boob. Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't see that the first time I saw that. I remember that was like the third or, or fourth viewing. I was like, oh, my gosh. It didn't. The production design in this movie is. <sighs> well thought out. Superb. And like the, the woman in the bathtub, the corpse in the bathtub. I didn't catch that until like the 10th or 12th viewing. Really? Yeah. I guess that was supposed to be the old lady that owned the house. I don't know. In the book, they, it says they found six or seven bodies. So it could have been anybody. Yeah, he's he's apparently been working at this suit for a while. Well, he's almost got it done, man. It looked like it was just missing some... I do like... And that's another thing Like we're talking about. I never noticed that he was wearing some other chick's scalp. Right. When he's doing the penis tuck scene. It's like, oh my god! You know, you get... And it's like, you go back and watch this movie... You get to your tenth viewing, and you start. You see all these things that you didn't see the first time. It's presented like these are very disturbing, disturbing images. Yeah, but it's presented so with such class. You know, they don't go for the. You see him peel the skull off and then put it on his head. It's just there. 
Yeah. And then when you realize what it is, you're like, oh. It is. It's so subtle. It's just like, you know, it just looks like his hair, really. If you don't, if you don't look for that line. You want to fuck me? Oh, man. Whew. That guy, like, he nails that character. Oh, yeah. Ted, Ted Levine. I don't think that guy, like, he had to grow a mustache. <laughs> like, seriously, you have to grow a mustache to not look creepy? Come on, man. Look, a mustache has made everybody but Tom Selleck look bad, okay? <laughs> this guy's like, man, I gotta get away from this Buffalo Bill roll. Fuck. Oh, poor poor guy. But he's a great actor. I, I really like, like a lot of the stuff he's done. Man, it's just such a demented character, and he plays it so well. I, I like how he goes from like these moments where you're like, you can see the, the masculinity in him, but then he, when he does his woman's voice... Or his beautiful voice. Yeah. Because in the book, it's like, you know, I just want to be beautiful. Right. So, and he he does his little soft voice, but... But he's got such a so deep cre- voice. Yeah, it's so creepy. Like it's, it's, it's that contradiction that's just like, oh, man. Because it wouldn't have been as creepy with a guy with, like, a high-pitched voice. Just talking high-pitched, it, would, yeah. it wouldn't have been as... But his voice is just so naturally deep. Ted Levine, is re- he's really good in this. You know, all the actors are good. There is not a, a single person that I would say is uh, is bad in it. There's a saying among directors is you cast the right actors, half of your job's done. Like I even like the uh, the Memphis slow southern drawled cops. Right. They're like, yes, yes, sergeant. Now, we can verify, like, living in Memphis, that is not Memphis. Man, we don't all talk like this, I promise. I tell you what, right now. Well, I well we may talk like that, but okay, I'm talking about the scenery bit. is not meant. There's not a tunnel here. Oh, you're talking about the scenery. Oh, yeah. Okay, I thought you were talking about. I the think dialect. they shot that in Pittsburgh, didn't they? I don't know where they shot that actually, but it's definitely not. It's not Memphis. It's definitely not Memphis. We have no no tunnels. Of, oh, we have, we have an M bridge. That's right. That's a bridge. That's in the shape of the letter M. And for some reason, it's called the Hernando de Soto Bridge. Why don't they just call it the M bridge? That's what most people. Most people here call it the new bridge. <laughs> the new bridge, the forty versus fifty-five bridge. Right. Oh my gosh. And now we just, as a city, <clears throat> we just built a walkway across the old bridge. You know, to make suicide easier. Make make it a little bit newer, man. Right. Make, make suicide easier. Now you can walk across the Mississippi River and jump. <laughs> Look, if you're going to kill yourself, just don't do it in fucking Tennessee. Walk over there. Walk and over it. there and do it. Let Arkansas oh, yeah. handle it. Go, go be their problem. Oh, my gosh. We digress. You know, if people want to say that this isn't a horror movie, I will say the two cameos in this film, horror directors, George Romero, Roger Corman. Boom. Boom. Proof's in the pudding. Isn't that what they say? Yeah, I just I don't understand the it's not a horror film argument. I mean, it, like you know, like we said earlier, he's making a suit. Uh, I mean, like how more horrible do you want to get before you can classify it a horror film? You just said that I, the well with the fingernails. Yes, like I, well, that's straight on. up saw. Yeah, yes, right. It's it's like saw, and they. I swear to God, they stole a shot in the ring. I swear to God, there's a shot very similar. Not with the basket going up. In the I mean, light. like, even Saw, but, you can tell, is influenced by Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, dude. That basement is like Saw 2 onwards. Right. Man, this movie did this influence is, a lot. This is like the grandfather of most horror that came after. Yeah. There is like a, yes, it, it is kind of like Psycho. There's like 
Horror before Psycho, horror after Psycho. Right. Horror before Silence of Lambs, after Silence of Lambs. There's also some variations in there, too, like Halloween, you know, Chainsaw. The best answer I ever heard to that was uh, Rusty, you know, rest in peace. Uh, We were talking to a friend of ours, and the guy said, I don't think Silence of the Lamb is a horror film. And Rusty just kind of looked at him and went, so you don't think it would be horrifying to have a guy that's going to skin you and wear your clothes, keep you in a cellar hole for three days, starve you so that you lose enough weight so that when he skins you, your skin is loose. That's not horrifying to you? That's thrilling? You get a little thrill with that idea? (laughs) Halloween is a slasher, and that's considered horror film. Silence of the Lambs is the realistic version of Halloween, whereas Halloween is like the boogeyman, and I'm just killing babysitters. Well... Look, Ted Bundy existed. They used a lot of Ted Bundy, Ed Ging. They used real-life serial killers and Hannibal Lecter in Buffalo Bill. Like, this shit really happens. That's what makes it so scary. Pretty frightening. Yeah. I mean, the people like this, monsters like this actually exist. And I don't know. As, as, for me, as a horror fan, it's like I hold this movie a little bit closer to my heart because it's like, see? See? Well, it's like the only horror film that horror fans can say, hey, that one won Best Picture. They gave us that one. <laughs> they gave us that one. They no, no no. See, I look at it as they couldn't ignore us anymore after that one. Yeah, but they did because they thought about giving us giving it to us with Jaws. They're like, well, should we? You know, sci. Uh, you know, sci-fi still. I don't. Sci-fi still has not won an Oscar. The genre has not won a Best Picture Oscar. Yeah, that's right. Avatar didn't win it, did it? No. I mean, you got Lord of the Rings. You got Fantasy has won a Best Picture. Just for the record, I rolled my eyes on that. <laughs> well, Return of the King, probably, you know, Fellowship of the Ring should have gotten the best picture, man. Yeah. That's what I think. But That, that is by far my favorite of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, mine too. They just get steadily longer and less interesting as the series goes on. In my opinion, yeah. I, I will include the Hobbits in there. By the third Hobbit, I was like, I do not want to see this anymore. <laughs> Can you please make it stop? <laughs> Uh, well, hey, you know what? We don't have to hear about any more Hobbit films, so that's good. But we do have Harry Potter spinoffs. There is that. I do have a funny story about that Harry Potter spinoff. Oh, what's that? Uh, you know, the screenplay was released as, like, a printed book. Um. No, that's a different... That's not the movie, though. It's a play. Yeah. Harry Potter when he's older or something. Stage play or whatever it is. Yeah. Just so happened, my wife and I were at, uh, Barnes & Noble the night the book came out. Or the screen or stage play came out. There were so many people there, so excited, thinking it was a new book. And a lot of people thought it was a new book, we, right? We stood outside and watched people leaving, opening the book, going, This looks weird. Wonder why it's written like this. It's, I don't think it, JK didn't even write it, right? I'm not a Potter guy. Yeah, I think she just like wrote like a story or an outline for it, and then somebody else went and wrote the play. But I mean, that would make sense. I mean, she's not a playwright. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the biggest Harry Potter fan, to be honest. I watch it because my kids watch it. But I've made it to part four. I've seen them all. I haven't. My wife was dragging, not dragging. Like when they first started coming out, she took me to the first one. I got into it. I was like, "Oh, that's a cool story." Second one came out. It kind of became our thing. The movie comes out. We go together. By the third one, we left, and I was like, "Okay, um, how many times is he gonna fight Voldemort?" And she goes, oh, well, that's the bad guy. I'm like, yeah, I know. We've we've beat him twice now. <laughs> like, seriously. He lost, uh, like, twice, 
<laughs> Voldemort has to win one of these or I'm going to lose interest. And we went to the fourth one and he beat Voldemort again. I'm like, no, no. Look, look at Star Wars. They beat the Empire in the first one, but the Empire wins the second one, which makes you want to see the third. That's true. That's true. You, you keep beating him. I don't, I don't consider Voldemort a threat anymore. I still don't exactly 100% understand the end of the first movie. I couldn't even tell you how it ends, honestly. Uh, Harry Potter touches, like, Voldemort's solely, soul-possessed, or not his soul-possessed, he possesses some other person's body. Harry Potter touches him, and he dies. They try to tack something on at the end because it was all the love for his parents, and it's just like, man, that just sounds like some hippie excuse. <laughs> I want a real a reason, damn it. I mean, if you're going to throw some magic on screen, tell me the reason. Why does this work? How does it work? There goes a screenplay that took some short shortcuts, and uh, something got lost in translation. Because I've never read the, that book, but I was a little confused in that movie. You know, now that you mention that, like, all three of the movies that I went and saw with my wife, well, four of them, I mean, I was constantly leaning over going, oh, what just happened? What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's because they do crap in the movies, and then they tell you afterwards. Right. And you're like, what? Wait a minute. You're telling me afterwards because this shit don't make a lot of sense, <laughs> dude. That's what you're, you're thinking. I'm going to forget. You're just like, hey, it's the, it, this is the reason. It's because he stuck a wand up his butt. You know, it, it, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's because he's got a scar. I mean, what? <laughs> the scar looks like lightning. He's magic. Fuck you. Go with it. <laughs> it's magic. It's like, it, my favorite. It's for kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I do like that third Harry Potter, though. That third one with the werewolf. And the Dementors, little the little flying soul sucking things. I like that one. I can I I can't say that I've hated any of them. I just honestly I haven't hated any of them either. Not I, I got it's true. I, I just got to the point where I was like, okay, Voldemort. I'm not I'm not worried about Voldemort anymore. Just doing shortcuts and everything like that from novel to to movie. Got me thinking real quick. I was re- reading, and you don't read a lot of negative criticism about Sons of the Lambs, but going going through like you know just IMDb and regular blog and Reddit right. posts. I did see some people were complaining about the pacing once Clarice leaves the last meeting with Lecter, and then it's Lecter's escape, and then Lecter stops, and then it's her hunting Buffalo Bill for that last section. You know, it's kind of like Lecter's story wrapping up, Clarice's story wrapping up. They're very split. Right. They don't intersect. A lot of people said that like after Lecter escape, they're kind of done with the movie. That that was the highlight of the movie for him. I don't really feel I that way. I disagree. For I think anybody yeah. that says that is there just to see Lecter. I mean, Lecter is a good character. He does have a lot of charisma, right? Um, and if you're I'll there, you if you're there, and the thing you want to see is Lecter, the, yeah. Once he leaves the screen, then you're kind of done with it. I mean, it, it's sort of like going to a you know like a like a like a music festival. If you're if you're there to watch the whole show, then each band is good, and you know, like you want to stay till the end. But if you're there to just see that one band, <laughs> once they leave the stage, then you, you know you're kind of done. Who cares who's playing next? Touche, sir. Touche. So those are the one band, yeah, audience members. They're there. To, I think those guys are there. To, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. They're there to see Lecter, and well, that's, that's, that's true. That's I mean, true. he's 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 definitely an interesting enough character that the studio asked for another book to be written just about him. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's no question that they went, oh, we have money here. <laughs> Please. Yeah, Dino got those rights back uh, for uh, for Hannibal real quick. 
Yeah, you see, he jumped on those. Movie making like almost 300 some million worldwide. Oh my gosh, back in 91. That's huge. Closing thoughts? Yeah, this is just one of my all-time favorites. Is that a period there? Yep. All right. Yeah, this is one of my all-time favorites too. I mean, I just, you know, this is one of those movies that it's like, I'm a huge horror fan, so horror movies are always going to have a little special specialness to my heart. This one is, not only is it a horror film, it's an excellently made movie. Every time I watch it, it makes me want to like, makes me as a, you know, as a person that like, you know, writes or makes movies, like challenge myself and think about like trying to do something a little different or, I don't know. I just, I just think this is one of those exceptional movies that go into that masterpiece category. Watching it with the Howard Shore score and the, uh, you know, it's it's a serial killer movie, but it does have kind of body horror elements with how the serial killers, you know, disfiguring women and dumping right. and killing their bodies. And I would like to see an alternate version of this movie that David Cronenberg directed. <laughs> I mean, like Howard Shore does all his music, and when I first saw this movie. I was like, did did David Cronenberg direct this? Because it feels like it was kind of shot in Canada. You know what I mean? It's got that Howard Shore score. It's got that very, like, the cinematography does have some color that comes into it. Like, we talked about those reds and everything. Right. But they're very purposeful. Really, this movie has pretty muted bland co- plat. Yeah, it's palette. very muted colors. And it does, it does kind of feel, I don't know, it, it feels to me like a little bit of a Cronenberg movie. but I'm sure there's some homage going on there. Yeah, maybe. All right, guys, so that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew. Crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, the extra E at the end, at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're at Twitter, at moviecrewpod. Benson, where can they follow you, sir? At J. Edward Benson. Uh, and, guys, uh, Girl in Woods is out on VOD. Help, help some brothers out. Go to IMDb and, and rate it a 10. Just for us. <laughs> go, go give us the best rating. Please. We will accept a nine or an eight. You know, man, the, the only people that go to IMDb are, are the people that either hate or love. The middleman is very left out of IMDb, I feel like. It's because the middleman doesn't, there's not enough passion there to go actually rate it. <laughs> You're like, yeah. If you hate it to the point that if you, you feel like you have to go rate it, then you'll rate it. And if you love it to the point that you feel like you have to go rate it, then you rate it. But if if yeah, if true. you like it, but you don't hate it or love it, you're not motivated. And while you're rating things, you can go over to iTunes, Stitcher, give us a rating. Helps people you, find out about the show. You can go to iTunes, watch the movie, listen to the podcast. Look, guys. Look at it. Look, it's perfectly set up. Uh, so we're going to close out the show with a little bit of uh, Howard Shore's score. Uh, this is going to be the main titles. And, uh, you know, yeah, for the creep factor, we'll play Goodbye Horses as well.
I see my hopes and dreams.